Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services. It was kind of like that I had this thing going on that I couldn't tell anyone. But everyone kind of knew that something was going on. I just felt like there was just always something wrong with me. And I was just like a little girl kind of trying to navigate through that. Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you've listened to this podcast before, you'll know that it's a storytelling platform. We bring you, and by we, I mean me, I'm literally the only person on the team, incredible true stories of survival and recovery, told by the people who lived them, their stories, their voices. I often, in the intro or during brief interludes, relate my experiences to the stories told in each episode. But I'm not going to do that this week. I don't want to take up any space. I just want you to hear this remarkable story of recovery from childhood sexual abuse. Here's Chloe. I grew up in the northeast England. I grew up in Middlesbrough. Quite small, a bit deprived, but a lot of soul. I have a lot of siblings. I've got four brothers and a sister. A lot of them were more grown up. My eldest sibling, she's uh, 14 years older than me. Really, really close though, really close. They just used to say I was just an absolute maniac. They just described me as just this lunatic, really, just running around. I always had like a really short, blunt bob and my hair was really thick. So I looked like, you know, like just had a big semicircle on my head. But I was also really shy. I loved school. I was very athletic. I really loved uh, like science and things like that. I wanted to be a, a scientist when I was a kid, so I was a bit of a nerd. You know, I loved, well, still do, loved reading, being creative, things like that. I don't actually know my biological dad, but my mum got remarried to my stepdad. She was a really vulnerable mum, single mum to, at that time, four children. We were not close. We didn't really have a mother-daughter relationship. And that was mostly because of the relationship that she had with my stepdad, which was actually my abuser that I lived in the home with. In many ways, she was also abused within that abuse circle. So she kind of went by his decisions, which would often pertain to harming me further. So it was a real opportunistic pairing for him to come into her life at that time, which I know now is obviously the the goal of it. I wouldn't say they had a great relationship at all. Both of them were drinking really heavily at the time. He was an alcoholic. I know that now, but she was also using alcohol a lot at the time. So again, that comes with different things like neglect, you know, physical neglect, ignoring our needs, doctors, dentists things of that nature that comes with it. So it was just a real just disassociation from me. They would kind of fight and argue and I would like sit at the top of the stairs and I'd be like cheering my mum on and be like, go on mum. And then the next day it'd be normal. And it was that kind of cycle of, you know, using alcohol, then, you know, having that heightened 
fight in the evening and then the next day, nothing had happened. Repeat, repeat. I was a baby, basically, when he first came into the picture. When I grew up, he was like my dad, really. I used to call him dad. He would do dad things, you know. We used to play, like, video games together. My mum played games, but not, like, you know, video games getting there. Nintendo 64 hours, stuff like that. We took get, like, the new Grand Theft Auto together, get, like, the new Final Fantasy together. We'd, like, just really have good times in a way. Um... So those are the things that kind of stick out because I think that was like a real entry point to me because I loved stuff like that. He knew I loved it. So that's how he would spend time with me. You kind of like bond with him over in that time. Yeah, I guess we did. It's a really funny one because, you know, this is a person who is like, it's my dad. So it has that dad relationship to it. It's a person in your life that you you have to respect as a parent, really, you know, regardless of anything else that's going on, which I think made it even more confusing for me, really, as a child to, you know, see him as a parent. But I did for a long time. I did. So it was around six, really, that that relationship started to change. It happens like you know, most cases of things like this, very gradually, that kind of started in like a routine. There was, you know, certain events of like a sexual nature that would happen at a certain time, you know, when mum would go to bed. Naturally, that's when I started to change as well with it. I was always like a, a good girl, you know, I would I wasn't really like a misbehaviour or anything like that, but I just started to act out. At school I was really looking I was connection seeking at school. So I used to love my teachers and things like that, but they would stop sort of like start to notice that I wasn't being like particularly nice to other students, that I wasn't being particularly nice to my little brother, you know, at home. I would be particularly mean to him. Maybe it was because of the connection because it was his son. I don't know exactly what was, you know, the cause of it, but I just knew that I just, at that time in my life, I just didn't want to be near him at all. It was kind of like that I had this thing going on that I couldn't tell anyone, but everyone kind of knew that something was going on. So it was, it was like, she knows, you know, I know she knows, he knows, she knows, you know, it was... It was like in the room, but also not. So I was, I just had a lot of my shoulders, I would describe it. And I was just like a little girl kind of trying to navigate through that. I could keep going because I was just floating on this boat of really big emotions every day. But it was so difficult for me to talk to anyone really because I couldn't really have friends over. I wouldn't have had friends over either, but you know, I couldn't really engage in a lot of like the the normal the things that children do because of not just what was going on with my stepdad, but for all of these myriad of other reasons that were also going on at the same time. So it was just like, you know, event after event after event after event. I just felt like there was just always something wrong with me. You know, I would cry a lot at school. If someone was going to ask me a question, I would like have what I would describe as like an anxiety attack. I would be hysterically crying, shaking, always getting taken out of the room. And other kids pick up on that as well. 
I just felt really low. I felt like a crybaby, really. One of my oldest brothers, he always knew something wasn't right. And because my brothers and were older, they moved out like as soon as they could. But when they would come back, they could tell immediately that something wasn't wasn't going right. So they would have like lots of physical fights with them. And then that eventually that kind of turned into them staying away and not coming back anymore, at least not for a while. And they had their own issues as well that comes with it because this was just my part of it. You know, these events had been going on for my, my siblings for a long time in their own different ways. So they were just, you know, young adults trying to get away from it, but they had a really tied relationship with them. I wouldn't even describe it as a relationship, to be honest. About 14 was the last event of like a sexual nature that I can remember. And it was actually when I was 14 that I told my mum. It sounds really weird, but one day I just realised that I'd been sexually abused and I was at a friend's house. I remember just saying like, I think I've been like abused all of my life. And I'm like, what? And I was like, and then everything like floodgates opened. And it's not that I didn't know, it's that I'd I didn't, like, understand that I'd been abused until that moment. And then I, I couldn't go home. I wasn't able to go home because I was at my friend's house. Um, and I was like, I'm going to have to I'm, I'm gonna have to tell her. But my mom was really scary, so I couldn't tell her to her face. I texted her what had been going on and how long it had been going on for. And she just texted back saying, OK. And when I come home and as I opened the door, the last thing I remember seeing him is he was had a pile of clothes and I opened the door to show them uh, my mum and he just said she's upstairs and that's the last time I ever saw him in the house. I didn't go to the police immediately. Mum had just bought um, a house with him and she was tied up in a mortgage and then suddenly she was a single mum. It was just me and my little brother at the time but with a big mortgage and then he'd got caught stealing money at his job so he got sacked and then she just had a mortgage with no money and that's when it just really got really tense between us because you know that it was it was my fault at that time you know it's my fault that we have no money I can't features I can't do x y and z so in a way it was way worse at that point for me those years between 14 and 17 was just absolute hell because I was I had um I had choice but I also had no choice either you know because you know when you're a young teenager you can't you know, you can't do anything anyway, but at least when I was a child, I kind of had a lot more constraints around me. At that point, my mum kind of just let the leash go because she couldn't deal with it either, to be fair. It was a, it's a hell of a lot to deal with. You know, that's when her drinking really escalated at that time. went to the police and I was 17 it was my older brother that kind of just came and said you know are you gonna are you gonna like go to the police or anything like honestly I genuinely hadn't even thought about it it hadn't even crossed my mind because no one kind of advocated for it I hadn't told services you know services weren't aware of anything that was going on so he was like I think you should go to the police and I did and I secured a conviction when I was uh, 18 which was 
it's amazing he told me to do it when I did because I was a couple of months before becoming 18 and the difference between a child case and when it turned into an adult it would have just been night and day so I don't know what made him tell, tell me to do that at that particular time it was just such a just a divine moment really I would describe it that he did that when he did and then and, um, luckily yeah secured a conviction that was a roller coaster in itself they'd seized his PC because that had material on and then he ran and they found him in them um, it was in a in a hospital because obviously it was historical I didn't need to go through any sort of examinations or anything like that but I just did uh, like a video uh, recording of my statement essentially and then the fact that he had material as well and he admitted to doing it and that was I think that's the nicest thing he's ever done for me really because it could have been a hell of a lot worse and I don't know I don't think I would have even pursued it any further if I'm being honest at that time I probably would have had to you know leave it because it, it's it was at that age really but you know later teen years that the chickens were coming home to roost like mental health like gone behaviors just gone that's when it really started to go really downhill for me and I don't think if if it had gone any other way I don't think I would have been able to continue it honestly I remember my mum's reaction was we don't talk about this anymore and that's when I first approached mental health services really for some support because it was getting really dicey I'd sort of, I'd attempted on my life. My first time was when I was 14, but then it was becoming more frequent in those teen years. That's when I, you know, really started to consider and access treatment. But I wasn't really in the position for any sort of therapy or anything like that. I wasn't, I wasn't well enough to do anything like CBT or like EMDR. I was absolutely nowhere near anything like that. So I just did a lot of counselling and to this day, that is the one thing that has really, really helped. And it was still really rocky all the way. I'd say until I was about 25, it was really rocky, really not well. Lots of different medications, lots of different diagnoses, you know, ranging from, you know, BPD to type 2 bipolar disorder when I know now is the, the person I am. I know that it was just the result of a lot of horrendous things happening to someone that was really young and I didn't need all of those things that were given to me. But, you know, this was my experience. When I accessed treatment, that was the thing. Oh, well, Chloe's like this because she's been sexually abused and that was the end of the story, you know, and now she's got BPD or now she's got, you know, she's got this. And so it, it was it was really rocky, but we're in a good position now with mental health services. Um, just going back to like when your stepdad was convicted, did they did they offer you counselling then? I'd been through school when I was fourteen to like a like a school counsellor, just like an in house thing, nothing too serious. So I'd had some kind of interactions there. You know, I I did kind of reach out and I did vocalise what I was going through. Many points in my life that weren't didn't fall under correct ears, you know. So I was very like. No, like I've, you've had you've had your chance. I've gave that minor disclosure when I was a child, and you didn't do anything with it. So it was only when I was around, like you know, eighteen, I came back to services and things like that, like community mental health nurses, things like that. Fabulous people. <laughs> 
that really, really supported me a lot. And really, again, like I said, I wasn't really fit for the treatment that they were kind of offering at that time. I just needed help. I didn't want to particularly do any work. I just, I was at that point of illness where I'm really poorly, everything's really bad, and I need you to just take this away from me at this moment, which is obviously not how it works. I didn't want to identify with it either, you know. I didn't want to kind of talk about it with people and everyone was like really softly spoken and like really nice and things like that. And I kind of, that wasn't what I was used to at that time. It was difficult for me to engage with the services then. It it wasn't the right time. I, I needed more really kind of like practical support and like how to be human again, really, as opposed to kind of unpicking really complex trauma. So I always dropped out of treatment. You know, I'd have an assessment, maybe go once, and then I'd be like, oh, I'm all right, don't worry. And they'd be like, really? And I'd be like, oh, I'm absolutely fine, don't worry. And then drop out, and then the cycle starts again. Of, you know, only only engaging with services when it was in crisis. I wasn't there for the long haul. I just wanted, like, that fix and then leave. Obviously not knowing that, you know, none of these things are the fix, but that's just what you do. When you're in that position, that's how you, you go with it. You're just always in crisis. I moved in with my sister when I was about 19, 20. I had a really, like, rubbish job. It was like a, you know, like a call centre job thing. I was absolutely terrible at it. I'm not a good salesperson. And I was just having a mental health crisis, like, every day. And my brother was like, you need to, like, wait and you need to go do something because like this how long is this going to go on and he was right and he gave me some really hard truths and I needed to change my behaviour at that time and he was absolutely right and I left that job and then I got a job at a supermarket with you know really low wage uh, a couple of nights a week I remembered that I loved being academic so I went back to college so college got access to counselling after college, I went back to university, got access to even more counselling, finished my degree, and then I did my master's, and then I got even more counselling while I was doing that. And then because of that change that I made and just, like, let go and was like, I need to start at the bottom instead of, you know, jumping to the top, that was it. And I, would like, remembered who I was really and, like, not all of these other lives. I was like, oh, I actually really like studying. You know, I love reading. And like slowly remembering all of the things that I used to like, because through all of this was the undercurrent of my own substance use as well, kind of having its own layer on it, and you know, alcohol use and um, and, and cannabis for a lot of years. So it was kind of like letting go of a lot of that and remembering like who I really was. That was the shift once I started like doing recovery, was changing my identity. That was the beginning bit and re- recovering myself and achieving goals. And then that evolved into me kind of changing my identity in terms of I used to think of I was like a victim. I used to use like the victim word on myself and then turning that to actually, no, that's not the case. You're not a victim of anything. You're a survivor of this. And as soon as I dropped that V word and turned it to survivor, that was it. It was day and night. I was like, oh my God. I started getting into things like, you know, like reading about post-traumatic growth things like that and I was like realizing like that actually like I've lived a really crazy life I'm here I'm like I'm still doing things and I'm all right 
and eventually just working on it bit by bit, doing doing lots of counselling, absolutely loads of counselling, discovering, you know, all of those little bits that have been locked away. It just, it that was it. I don't ever say words like cured, but I honestly don't think about it. This is today's probably the first time I've thought about it in such a long time because I, I just don't think about it. And when I do, I just think like, that's so wild that that happened, but I'm so grateful that that happened because I wouldn't be anything that I am now if I hadn't survived everything that I've been through. It gives you like my compassion, my drive, my ridiculous, terrible, dark sense of humour, which is like my biggest asset. None of those things would exist if I hadn't survived all of those things. And, and now I'm in a position where I can help other people as well. And that's like, that's just like the cherry on the cake of it all, honestly. I'm an alcohol and non-opiate caseworker, which means I'm helping people coordinate their own recovery uh, through one-to-one meetings, involvement with other agencies, using things like a lot of sort of like motivational interviewing, other psychosocial interventions, all the way down to the most practical help that you can offer. And it's absolutely unbelievable. Honestly, I didn't think that jobs like this existed truly. It wasn't it wasn't even on my radar. I just went for it and I thought, oh gosh, there's no way I can do this. And then it turns out that I can use everything that I've been through with other people's recovery. Obviously not in detail, but things don't shock me ever. And that's like a real big thing that's helped me with this and it helps them helps to really support people and it, it just feels amazing to do it as well and get and get really positive outcomes for people you know families reunited unbelievable things happening between a nine till five and on a monday to friday it's just mind-blowing honestly it really is it is it really is. it's just so humbling honestly and it's just such an honor to be inside of you know, people's journeys of their own recovery, helping them navigate, you know, the highs, the lows, talking about the specifics of it, you know, what it looks like, you know, doing, you know, everything that you can do and all the other things as well outside of the life. I mean, he's do really amazing groups, you know, like we've got allotment groups, gym groups, AA meetings, smart recovery meetings, all of the different tools that are really going to amplify recovery or access to rehabs access to detoxes, just every, everything under the sun with recovery. Forgiveness is another thing that set me free. The forgiveness of all of these people that hurt me, even to my stepdad, you know, forgiveness to him. I've heard about his life recently and it's it's horrendous, you know, he's on the sex offenders list, he's not allowed to go certain places, he's He's not allowed to phone, he's not allowed any of these things, and he just he just sits and gambles all day and like machines and it's like a, a hollow existence and that doesn't even particularly make me happy. But I think everyone is different because that's the, the forgiveness is like a really big word to apply to these situations and that doesn't mean forgiving people for their actions. It means forgiving them for, you know, the harms that they've done and giving them accountability as well. What was that process like, like forgiving your mum? It was long because in some ways I held her to a higher account than I did him because that's what, that was my mum. 
and she's supposed to protect me and look after me and nurture me and do all of the things that mum did and she didn't do any of those things but my mum isn't in the greatest of health and I thought I'm going to lose her as everyone will and I'm not going to have the opportunity to really talk about what it felt like for me and as difficult as it was that was one of the best things I did as well you know it doesn't make it okay but it means that I have another person to call. I have another person to speak to. So that's a, a that's something that I'm really glad that I was able to capture in all of it. And it took a very, very long time for me to to have a relationship with my mom. Uh, at first, I had like the screaming matches. You know that didn't work. You know the talking ones. It didn't work. And it eventually just come down to me knowing that even if this is a one sided forgiveness. It's still one that's going to set me free. And at the end of the day, that's what I need to do. And it wasn't pretty at all. And I did not, like, I went into it thinking I'm going to 100% keep my curly and I'm going to say exactly what I mean first time. And I absolutely did not some of those things. I was screaming, bawling. And she was. She didn't even know what on earth I was talking about because this is all the way that I was feeling. And it, it, she didn't understand that, so... Yeah, it was uh, to really sort of, you know, have that conversation and tell how I feel. And and also the biggest part is is know that it doesn't matter what she says about it either, you know, because it, I can't stop her autonomy. I can't stop her, her being a human as well because she's made mistakes. And she was put in a really difficult position that I'm not sure what I would do. I'm not sure what any people would do with all of those factors combined it sounds it's you know you look at it from the outside and think oh well that was the easy option when honestly her life has not been picture perfect she's had a lot of things to deal with and contend with and that's why I give her so much grace because it's just like levels of you know trauma that people go through and then that makes their decisions not come out the way that we would think they should you know coming to terms with her role in abuse you know, the decisions that she's made and then also adding some, you know, humility to it and kind of thinking of it as in them, um, you know, nobody's perfect and these situations are really difficult to navigate. So applying all of that to the relationship that I have with my mum and now we have a, a fantastic relationship because of all of that work. And, you know, do you know all of those games that I played with my stepdad for a long time? I couldn't play them, and now I play them all the time. And I, I take ownership of things that were, you know, taken off me. I make them authentically my own now, you know, and I don't allow anyone to disturb that peace. Just enjoying my job, I'm enjoying my life. I'm working on getting married next year. He's absolutely stunning. I've known him since I was 18 and then we rekindled just last year. We'd been in touch for 10 years. He went away and we went abroad and he did his thing. I stayed home and attempted to do my thing. And then we've just come back together at the right time. He's always known my story. He's always known exactly who I was and he's always been such a big cheerleader for me and such a huge support and and it just even more than that, you know, he's just like, he's mad. He's my best friend. He's the funniest person in the world he's the father to my two cat children you know he's a great cook you know the list goes on and on he's an absolute diamond he really is
what does recovery mean to you? It means to become myself again, but not the same self, a new self that is different in many ways, same in many ways, but to have access to that person and to live who I authentically am, regardless of what's happened. That's what it means. You've been listening to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show and join the community on Instagram at Recovery From Anything. You can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website, recoveryfromanything.com. Thank you for listening.